Good evening. Hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, I wanted to begin on time because this is being podcast. So, ooh, cool. Hi, I'm Kathy Herrig. Um, I'm the owner of Mystery Loves Company Booksellers in Oxford, Maryland, on the Eastern Shore. But in my previous existence, before I retired in 2001, I was the branch manager of the Roland Park Library. And so this used to be my room to come for our branch manager's meeting. And it's one of the most precious places in Baltimore, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so soak in all the atmosphere. And it's a perfect place, of course, for a mystery evening, and because this is the Poe Room. And I'm sure Edgar is lingering a little bit <laughs> various places. It is my privilege this evening to introduce you to two wonderful authors. Um, Sheila, uh, well, you're both in green. <laughs> Sheila <laughs> Connolly is the New York Times bestselling author of um, three cozy mystery series. She, that's three. Uh, it's, it's not enough to have one. She has three. Uh, her uh, museum mysteries are set in Philadelphia, and they are uh, have a museum director who she follows through various incarnations in her books. And then she has an orchard series, which is set in Philadelphia, uh, in uh, Massachusetts, and then her Scandal and Skibbereen, which is the new second book of her um, Cork series, which is set um, in Cork near Skibbereen and Lep and a lot of other fabulous scenic places in Cork. Uh, my interesting thing, side note, is my husband's relatives are from Skibbereen, and it is absolutely an amazing place. It was the head of the, it was the, the um, uh, rallying cry for, for the, um, after the famine for a lot of patriots, Irish patriots, and um, it was a very beloved place in, in um, Ireland. You must go to see it. Sandra Parshall is from Virginia, and her Rachel Gard series are set in Virginia. Her first series, He of the Moon, won the Agatha Award for Best First Novel of 2006, and her next book is Poison Ground, and Sandra is a big animal, animal advocate, and her uh, character is a veterinarian, female veterinarian. So they're going to talk about city and country, why the setting matters in traditional mysteries. Okay. <laughs> Time to panic. Um, I want to add one note before we start. Uh, Enoch Pratt was born in Middleborough. I live in Middleborough at the moment. I'm also descended from at least three different lines of Pratt's, so Enoch was my fifth cousin five times removed, as is Emily Dickinson and Johnny Appleseed, a.k.a. John Chapman. So if you do any genealogy in New England, you find you're related to everybody. <laughs> Um, should I start since I seem to have more serious? Sheila and I used to work for about seven years. We were blog sisters on a blog called Poe's Deadly Daughters. So we've known each other a very long time through Mr. Poe. And we regarded him as our spiritual father. And we toured the Poe house together. Yes, we did. Yes, <laughs> yes. Why don't you start and tell about your settings? I will talk fast. Uh, I'm apparently a glutton for punishment since I write three series. I did not start all of them at once. There was an order and a logic to it. The first series was The Orchard Mysteries, based in part because I have generations of ancestors there, because my daughter was going to college in the neighborhood, and I discovered a house that was built by one of those ancestors. And from a, a purely practical viewpoint, when people, wherever they live in this country, think of America, I think it's New England that comes to mind 
you know, the town green, the white church on the hill, the colonial square houses scattered around town, trees, beautiful autumns, lots of snow, which they still have. Uh, so it's iconic, and then I threw in apples in case that wasn't enough. So I, I covered all the bases, although my protagonist is a banker. She's learning. The second series is set in Philadelphia because I lived around Philadelphia, worked in Philadelphia at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania for several years, and I wanted the contrast of a city versus country. There aren't as many city cozies. You may want to address that too, but um, even within a city, you have the cultural community, and it's a small community. Everybody knows everybody's business, which is how fundraisers operate, and my protagonist starts out as a fundraiser. The County Cork series is a labor of love. It was actually based on the second book I ever wrote a long time ago. My grandfather came from that area. It's still called the Wild West of Cork because it is fairly rural, although, yes, they have very good food and satellite dishes now. But my protagonist there is raised in the Boston community, the Boston Irish community, home of Whitey Bulger, and comes to this with no expectations and a chip on her shoulder. So she's learning about Ireland, too. So there is a real contrast between the three of them. Sheila makes me feel like a slug because I only write one series. (laughs) And it takes me a year to write a book. So (laughs) I'm much lower than she is. Uh, My first book actually was set in McLean, Virginia, which is where I live. It's right outside Washington, D.C., so it's really an urban area. And uh, in the second book, I moved my protagonist, Rachel Goddard, out to the mountains of southwestern Virginia, which is a totally different setting. You know, very uh, poor rural mountain community, small population, lots of, lots of unemployed people, uh, very rustic. So she... She had a lot of adjustments uh, to do. I I moved her out there really because I wanted that tension between the insiders and the the old-timers and the newcomer. You know, it's the kind of place where you sort of have to be born there before they'll accept you as one of them. And she's a newcomer, even though she owns the uh, animal hospital and everybody brings their animals to her. Uh, She's still a newcomer, even after several years. Uh, so she has that that tension going on with the local people, but and she has to learn to adapt to a slower pace of life, a different different way of life. And I I love that setting because it it gives me a lot more opportunity for different kinds of characters, a different mix of characters. Uh, I I love living in McLean, but really it's like plain white milk. You know, it's very homogenized. You know, there's not a lot of drama in McLean. We don't usually have murders in McLean. It would be would have been a stretch to keep her in McLean and have her stumbling over dead bodies all the time. <laughs> but out in the mountains, yeah, everybody owns a gun and when they have a disagreement, the guns tend to come out and somebody gets hurt. So there's a lot more opportunity for drama in, in that setting, I think. So that that's why I moved her. I, it was kind of mean of me to do it, but uh, I needed to. I needed to if I wanted to continue writing about her. We like to make life difficult for our heroines. Oh, we have to. We have to. <laughs> yeah. Tension. 
Yeah, you treat them treat them well. You have no conflict. Then right. You have it, no story. You have exactly. no story without something conflict. has to happen. Right. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad you raised the point about insider versus outsider yes. because Meg Corey, the heroine in the Orchard series, is an outsider. Although her mother and her family goes back for years, but nobody's ever lived there. Her mother inherited the house, had seen it like twice in her life. Meg loses her job, her boyfriend, her apartment in Boston, and since she has nothing better to do, she moves into this house in the country in January, and all of it's an old, unrehabbed rental colonial that's falling down, and of course the first thing that goes out is her plumbing, which is kind of essential, and it gets fixed and then goes out again because there's a body in the septic tank. <laughs> so poor Meg is here in the freezing winter, knows nobody in town, and what that let me do is I introduce people one or two at a time. She doesn't walk in and get to know everybody. She meets people as they come into her life in a very normal way. And it also gives me great opportunities because I can keep adding people until I exhaust the town, which has a population of about 6,000, so I think we're <laughs> safe so far. The flip side is um, Nell Pratt, I borrowed that name, in the museum mysteries, because she is an insider. She has been within the community for about 10 years. She knows the players, which is very helpful. And I realized that I hadn't thought about it, but fundraisers are sort of colorless people. You never see them except when they sign letters saying, please send money, which they do all the time. Uh, So you don't want to think about fundraisers, but they think about you quite a bit. Fundraisers collect information. I'm not talking about what you can get online, of which there's plenty, but they collect newspaper clippings, they collect who sat next to who and, and what they talked about. They have this wonderful file, and, and in the case of the Historical Society, this file covers five drawer cabinets that fill up a wall. This is all personal information. Now, you put that together with what the police and the FBI have, and you can solve crimes very nicely because you have information they don't have. So being an insider in this case is important, except most of the world doesn't know what she has. Well, Rachel is, uh, she is able to go places. Uh, my, my books really are not cozies. Uh, they do have some violence in them on the page. Uh, the violence is not off the page. Um, but uh, they, they do have a, they, they have a lot of the characteristics of cozies, I guess. You know, a small community where everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's secrets and uh, can use those secrets against each other. Uh, but Rachel, even though she's an outsider and a newcomer, she takes care of people's pets, and she makes house calls. Uh, she goes out to farms to see animals. So she is able to go places that the police can't go. Uh, she's able to get people to tell her things that they may not tell the police. And uh, she has a relationship with, uh, with a, a deputy on the, the sh- in the sheriff's department, uh, which it, it takes a while to develop. And by book six, uh, I'll, I'll tell you now, they do get married. In book six, they're married. <laughs> so if you start at the beginning, you can see the development of their relationship. Um, but he's, uh, he's kind of an outsider himself because uh, he's, even though he was born and raised there, He's Melungeon. He's mixed race. And the Melungeons are a group of people who have been in the Appalachians for hundreds of years. 
but they were discriminated against for most of their uh, most of their history. Their land was taken away from them. They weren't allowed to go to to uh, school with white children uh, until the twentieth century and the mid twentieth century began to set things right. Uh, so Tom Tom Bridger. Uh, is kind of an outsider in his own home county. He moved away for a number of years to work on the Richmond Police Department. Then his uh, father, who was uh, the who was in the the uh, sheriff's department, died in an accident. He came back home uh, and took his father's old job. And now he's he's got that that thing going on where you know people. Some people don't trust him, you know, because they think he's different from them. Uh, and yet he's he grew up there. He knows everybody. And uh, and yet he's he's kind of frustrated sometimes that Rachel, the outsider, is able to find out things that he sometimes can't find out because she's taking care of people's animals and they tell her things and she sees things, hears things that that he may not be able to. So they they work together. She's not she's not one of those amateur sleuths who think the cops are stupid. She knows Tom is is a good cop and can solve the crime if he has has to all by himself without her help. But she is able to be of some help to him. So that that's something I don't I couldn't really couldn't do in a, a city setting. I don't think the city police don't take kindly to civilians interfering in their business. Very true. <laughs> Notice we have female protagonists. Yes. Uh, I think women ask the right questions. They don't have the official standing, but that's often a good thing when you're talking to individuals. They are more likely to share information with you. Uh, but it, it's been fun working around the Philadelphia setting because, yes, the police do not want the FBI involved. They certainly don't want civilians involved, except when they have special knowledge. In fact, I hadn't ever realized it before I got into this, but the FBI has to be invited to participate. They can't just march in and say, we're taking over. So it's a a delicate balance. I've given the Philadelphia police a female detective who most often interacts with it, but she and Nell are butting heads quite a bit because she doesn't want the help. She needs the help. And I also try and get out of town now and then. The next book actually takes place in Chester County, so we're in the suburbs now. (laughs) You can't kill everybody in Philadelphia. Uh, The interesting thing, (laughs) although they do try, um, the Irish story is interesting because I came at that as an outsider. I have Irish grandparents. I never knew them. I spent a couple of hours of my life with them. So I was learning this from scratch, and what is interesting and true is the length of memory. People remember not just you and your parents, but they can tell you what your ancestors were doing 200 years ago because it's a very small community there as a country. There are 4 million-plus people in the entire country. You talk to the police officers in Skibbereen, eight officers total. They were worried about cuts. Um, I I talked to a lovely detective, and he said, well, we've had three murders in the district in the last 10 years, and we knew who did them all. (laughs) What do you solve? They they do have real-world problems. We had a wonderful discussion about an event, a drug smuggling episode, in which they actually called in the CIA so they could tap the smugglers' cell phones. 
So that's the excitement there. But in general, there is not much crime. It's almost difficult to shoehorn crime into modern Ireland, except for the two biggest cities. Yeah. One problem that that all writers have when they're writing about a small community is just the unreality of so many murders in such a small place. And uh, we really could depopulate the town if we just kept going. <laughs> uh, so one thing we do is bring in outsiders, you know, to be the victims or the killers or whatever. You know, somebody, somebody in the town has something in their past uh, that, you know, has aroused hatred and somebody from the outside can come in and kill them. Or somebody, uh, somebody from the outside comes in and, and turns up dead. And in one of my books, uh, Broken Places, which is the third one, I think. I'm, I'm losing count now. Uh, the third one. Uh, the two victims are uh, people from the outside who came to uh, the mountains many years ago as VISTA volunteers. You all remember the War on Poverty, which uh, was a dismal failure in most respects. Uh, They came to that area as VISTAs and uh, caused a lot of turmoil. And uh, to everyone's dismay, they they did not leave. They stayed and continued to be activists through all these years. And in my book... uh, Finally, somebody kills them off. Both of them are, they're not killed together, but they're killed on the same day. They're both killed on the same day, the husband and wife. And the rest of the book is about the unraveling of their history and their interactions with local people. So in that case, they they were, even though they had been here for decades, they were still outsiders and still seen as outsiders and many people, when they were killed, said good riddance. So, you know, but Tom Bridger uh, had to solve the murder and uh, murders. And uh, in that case, uh, Ra- Rachel was a great help to him. Uh, she is usually, you know, just because she's able to get things out of people that, uh, that they wouldn't tell the police. If we could shift gears for a moment, we can talk about how you make a place come alive. Mm-hmm. I should make a confession. When The first series I wrote, and there's some copies up there, was under a pen name, and I was commissioned by Berkeley Prime Crime to write about a glassblower in Tucson, Arizona. And mm-hmm. I said, uh, well, I'm not a glassblower, and I've never mm-hmm. seen the Southwest, much less Tucson. I said, don't worry about it. So I wrote the first book without ever having visited Tucson. At least I had a friend there, but I never saw it. I did find that Google Earth will let you do 360-degree views of street corners, which is nice. But I made a point of going. And I betrayed my own ignorance to the friend who lives there by saying, when I visit, I want to see cactus. And she laughed at me. said, you know, there are cactus in the parking lot at the airport. You don't have a choice. (laughs) So obviously I wanted to do better than that when I got to the other series. But how do you make a place become real, you know, be, become a character, become tangible? What details, what setting do you give it? Well, I, the mountains are really easy for me to write about because uh, my father's whole family is from the uh, Appalachian Mountains, the uh, Smoky Mountains of North Carolina and, and farther west. Uh, and I spent a lot of time there when I was growing up, and I've always loved the mountains. And I do think that 
that mountain residents and mountain communities are fundamentally different from city folk, as they say. Uh, and that there is a, a much more down-to-earth feeling to it, but just the beauty, the beauty of the mountains is, especially in a place like southwest Virginia, where there is so much poverty, and, and I spent a number of years working in West Virginia, which also has a dreadful amount of poverty. Uh, the beauty of the place, the mountains, the setting, the, the in this fall especially, is just breathtaking to look up at the mountains and see the see all the colors, you know, coating the mountains. And to contrast that with the poverty uh, and, and the ugliness of, of some of the, the landscape is, uh, it, it shows the contrast between the, the setting and, and the lives of some of the people. Uh, you see these gorgeous mountains clothed in all these different colors, and then in among the trees you see these little shacks that are just clinging to the mountainsides. And there are people living in those little shacks. And below them are the, the little streams that are just clogged with garbage and sometimes with, with runoff from the local mountaintop removal mine, which is you know poisoning the landscape and all the water. So there, there's, uh, it, it's a very rich setting. Uh, you can choose any number of details to to make it come alive you know to show that it is both beautiful and ugly mm-hmm. at the same time but i think of ireland as always being beautiful <laughs> is that true almost everything i've seen mm-hmm. I, the first time i visited the place where my great grandparents lived when my grandfather was born i walked down the lane and looked out over the rolling hills and said how could they possibly leave this and then the brain starts working, saying, well, okay, there were 10 kids in the family. You had little plots of land scattered all over the place. And, and back when the English were in control, the average land holding was five acres. You cannot raise a family on five acres. There was no industry. There were no jobs. They had to leave. It was not a question of whether it was beautiful or home. And home was always very poignant to people. But if you wanted to live, you had to go somewhere else. Yeah. And I think that pervades. The bed and breakfast I stayed at the first time I visited, down by this beautiful harbor, cows grazing on the hills, boats. Um, The house we stayed in was a very nice modern house. There were one or two more around the cove. And I talked to the man who owned the house, who'd lived there all his life, and said, yeah, there used to be 12 cottages here. Same kind of thing, little one-room stone cottages with families living in them. So it's right there under the surface, so to speak. You know, it's, it's this tension. It's like well, having the ancient history there, too. You have monuments that are thousands of years old next door to the place with the satellite dish. Yeah. But there are also mansions, you know, rich people who can afford to go out in the countryside and, and build a mansion as a, a nice vacation getaway. And do they have that in Ireland? Uh, you're talking about the blow-ins now. <laughs> <laughs> Not in Cork. There may be other areas, but I always like that because it is... It's like walking into a time warp. It's very strange because some things have never changed. I went to a Christmas bazaar this past year, the beginning of December, and when you walked in, it could have been any era. There was nothing modern or ancient about it. There was a toothless man sitting by the door selling raffle tickets, and it took me a while to get out of him what he was selling. It was a truckload of wood. (laughs) 
which, if you had a cottage in the country, would be useful to you. But how often do you find that these days? Aren't there a lot of artists and uh, musicians living in Ireland? Uh, well, yeah, they have very nice tax breaks for artists. Yeah, in right, right. And there are artistic communities like yeah. Skull, which is not that far from Baltimore and yeah. Skibbereen and Lep. Is a thriving place in the summer when the yachts come in. In winter, it's dead. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there are mm-hmm. colonies, so to speak. There was a great murder mm-hmm. there a decade yeah. or so ago about an English journalist who was killed in right. Skull. Right. I don't know of any place in the U.S. where there's tax breaks for writers. <laughs> if you hear of any, let us know. Yeah, right. We'll move there. <laughs> yeah. Let's start lobbying. Yeah. Another thing I love about the the mountain setting is that the the uh, seasons are because of the landscape, because the roads are often poor, because it's up and down, it's difficult to get anywhere in bad weather. Uh, the seasons are, are much more uh, in your face. You know, you, the people have to, to adjust their daily lives according to the seasons just to get around. And, uh, you know, I, in, in my books, I, I have really enjoyed using uh, heavy snowfalls and uh, spring and summer, you know, when it's hot and, and the, the uh, autumn when there's such beautiful colors. You know, I, I love to use all the different seasons, but writing about winter is, uh, which I hate, I hate winter. Uh, I always think winter is very difficult to get through wherever I am including right there in McLean where, you know, the grocery store is only a mile away. Uh, but sometimes we're snowed in, you know, on our cul-de-sac. We can't get out of our street. But what is it like in the mountains? And I remember when I lived in West Virginia, right in the city of Charleston, I sometimes could not get down the hill from where I lived to, to go to work at the newspaper across the, the river because it was coated with ice and you know, I was afraid for my life. How could I get down that that hill? I mean, like that. So, in the in the in the mountains, I, I think the they feel the seasons a lot more than we do in the cities. So. Well, it doesn't snow often in Ireland, although it does snow. But an awful lot of people still live up single lane, unpaved roads. School buses yeah. can't get around. Right. You get anything like snow, school's mm-hmm. out. Yeah. I, Although I think the other seasons are more consistent. You, you don't have the gorgeous mm-hmm. autumns. Oh, they don't have, that's right, they don't have many, they don't have much don't autumn have color. trees. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, well, you live in New England now, right? Mm-hmm. So you yes. get the most gets gorgeous, lovely trees. most gorgeous color in the, yes, in the world, yes, the, I think, but... Well, the Orchard okay. series is based on a real house in a real town. And the town now knows it. I am now a standing guest at their fall annual Harvest Festival and Tag Sale, which is wonderful because I sit there and sell books, and they come and tell me all their memories about Granby. And, and there's a couple that came in a year or so ago, retired from government positions, and are now raising llamas. Said, okay, I can use that. <laughs> They're going to be wandering llamas throughout the town as they learn how to keep the fences up. Uh, but let's see, where was I going with that? The, the town yeah. green is still functioning. It's ringed by maples, which turn colors. They're still tapping those maple trees. The parkers up the hill are still making maple syrup from the trees on the green. Again, there's a persistence of the history, and it's not just for tourists, because very few people actually stop in Granby. They just keep going. 
What about the the city setting? What what are the advantages of that? Well, a lot of people, a lot of history. Hmm. What have I used? A, a lot people who care about history. I think we need to preserve them. I think we need to preserve hmm. the history. I, one of the reasons I started writing this series was because I wanted to show what goes on behind the scenes in any cultural institution museum. And I think people have a lot of misunderstandings. Oh, it's a beautiful building. Oh, it looks really nice. They must have scads of money. Well, they don't, which is why you have lousy security. You can't afford to install all the systems you, that exist but are expensive. You can't add staff. You can't even heat some of your stacks some of the time. So you know, there's this tension between what looks gorgeous and which is harboring some of the most incredible documents in the country. I mean, it, this is the nation's history down the street from Independence Hall. And you're struggling to keep the doors open and the heat on. Yeah, that's true. But do you uh, do you get a wider variety of characters in the country setting or in the city setting, or do you do you just bring in who you need? <laughs> <laughs> well, the bus opens and somebody gets off. Right. No, there are plenty of people to work with without maligning anybody. I, I had fun with this most recent book because the main character was inspired by Willard Rouse who was a very famous developer who I actually worked with on a project many years ago. But he was kind of larger than life. He changed the skyline of Philadelphia, among other things. And yet he was he was not a dirty player. He was above board. He, he was an honest developer, if you can believe that. So it was rather fun to give him an image of a perfect community and, and have him fight for it and stumble over a couple of bodies along the way. Well, in my my latest book, uh, Poison Ground, it, it also revolves around a development project. Mm. See, we're um, thinking alike. Here. Yeah, right. <laughs> a big development company comes in. They want to turn practically the whole county into a resort for the rich, a, a mountain resort. They want to buy up huge parcels of land, build a, a big lodge, and, and just make it a magnet for rich people who want a, a mountain getaway. And it stirs up a tremendous amount of controversy because uh, they're really asking the whole county to come on board with this. And much of the county would be involved in serving this resort. And it, the, my character, Rachel, feels that this is a predatory company uh, that will not offer good jobs. It will offer low-quality jobs with no benefits, whatever. Uh, it won't treat... It has This company has a reputation of treating its employees very badly. And she's afraid the whole county is going to become uh, enslaved to this development company. And a lot of the local landowners uh, who want to hang on to their way of life, object to it. And uh, a couple of them are murdered because they won't sell their land. Or, it, you know, it, that, that's the presumed motive. And it, the whole book is about the, the controversy stirred up uh, by this development company and their, and their plans to change this tiny mountain community into something radically different and, of course, there are many other layers to it. It, uh, it stirs up old grievances, old memories, you know, old jealousies and hatreds between the local people uh, that go much farther back in the past than, than the recent uh, controversy. But, but it is all triggered 
uh, all of that is triggered by this development company coming in and trying to change the place radically. And uh, the tension between the people who want jobs at any price, any kind of jobs, just bring them on, and the people who realize that this, in the long run, is not going to be a good deal for this county. So that's, uh, that's another, another instance of bringing in outsiders to stir up trouble when I'm tired of killing off, uh, you know, make it, making local people the villains. In this case, I do kill off some local people, but at least the, the, villains, the villains that started all are outsiders. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're sort of on the same page because where I set this hypothetical planned community which is based on one I actually know in Massachusetts, the person who dies was both a municipal employee and a dedicated amateur history buff. So which one got him killed? Because he's trying to defend the history of a piece of land that was in the same family for 200-plus years? Or because somebody didn't want this project to go forward? And that's one of the things that has to be teased out in solving the crime. Why is he dead? And it, it's funny because the real community there, which my stepfather was zoning officer for, so I kind of know it, has been very responsible about remodeling, bringing in industry, but making it palatable, saving as much of the old as they can. So they didn't change the face of the community, but they did bring in income. So that it can be done right. So why is, did somebody have to die in this process? You know, there are yeah. social issues here too. Yes, yes. Do you want to take some questions? Or do you have more Certainly. to say? We can yes. also talk about writing. Yes. <laughs> no, you can't have our agent. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to ask a question, could you speak in the mic? Because we're going to be podcasts. So um, can you give one of the mics to mm-hmm. us? Well, I'm, I'm going to need a mic to answer. No, well, we, we will share. So, yeah, uh, you might so have so questions. Or would you like to have Writing first. Okay. Okay. So I understand you're familiar with your settings. Um, do you continue to research your settings for each new book, or do you rely on your your past or previous knowledge of, of each location? I think every every book requires uh, some research. Like one book that I wrote um, is about the. It starts with the murder of a. Uh, it's about revolves around the murder of a, a young man who's a, a musician, a mountain music musician, and I got the idea for that from reading uh, Blue Ridge Country magazine. They had a big spread about all the mountain music festivals in southwest Virginia, and I started thinking about that, and I put it together with uh, uh, with a, a separate plot about uh, a young woman who is a young law, law student who is working with an innocence project to prove that the man who killed this young musician is actually innocent and was falsely imprisoned. Uh, but I did get the basic idea to make him a musician uh, from from reading uh, Blue Ridge Country Magazine, which is a great magazine, by the way. I love to do research. 
<laughs> Especially when it involves sitting in pubs in Ireland. That, that works very well. Uh, but if you have outsiders who gradually become insiders in any community, they perceive things gradually. They don't see it all at once. You know, it, it may be a while before they realize, oh, there's no decent restaurant in this town. What's that about? So, you know, book three, I created a very nice restaurant. The real town still does not have a good restaurant, by the way. <laughs> Um, so you yourself focus on different aspects. There's a feed store on the main road. Did I talk about that before? No. But now Meg is going to go visit the feed store. And I was in the feed store making sure that you couldn't see someone being attacked inside the store from the street. That, that's research. The same with Ireland. You know, If you have a city-raised, not very educated young woman who gets dumped into a fairly rural community, there's a lot that's going to surprise her and say, What? How do you do? Do I have a license? Do I need a license? How do I renew a license? I'm, I'm, am I Irish? Well, maybe. You know, so all of this is new to her, and she can't do it all at once. So you have to sort of give it to her in pieces and let her work through each one. My, my main character is a veterinarian, so anytime I have her treating an animal, I'd better get it right, or I'm going to hear about it from somebody. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm careful about that. I have... I, my first book, The Heat of the Moon, really has more veterinary detail than any other book that I've written since. And I had a, a friend who is a veterinarian. She read it over, and she kept me from making some stupid mistakes. And in my second book, uh, she read it, and she said, you know, everything is okay except that you have in this scene you have set up a situation where your animal hospital is going to be blown sky high. So you better do something about those oxygen tanks that are stored in the basement <laughs> before you let the fire get out of control. So, so I had to write in a, a sequence where they remove the oxygen tanks, you know, to keep them from exploding when the place is on fire. So that that's the kind of thing, you know, that you you won't think i i won't think of myself you know i didn't think of it so when you're dealing with a profession like that you really have to get some help from somebody who knows knows the details and can correct your mistakes and i've been lucky to not make too many awful mistakes yet <laughs> you mean we don't know questions? everything If I could just add one thing. When I sat down with Sergeant Tony in the police station in Skibbereen and and in the interrogation room, and I said, okay, say you find a body on the lawn. What do you do? And he walked me through step by step exactly who does what and in what order and to whom they report. And you can't get in a restaurant without going through Dublin. You just don't hand them out locally. You know, this sort of thing you don't know. We don't even know what happens here, all those steps. You certainly don't know what goes on in a foreign country. We have uh, mystery writers have an incredible online community of experts who will answer all our questions. You know, we have a number of different uh, listservs and websites that we can go to, and people in uh, Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, you know, we, we can call on them any time, and free of charge, they will research our question, answer our question for us, it's just amazing, you know, how generous the whole mystery community is, helping each other all the time to, to get things right. Because we know it reflects on the whole genre. If things are not accurate, uh, you know, it reflects on all mysteries. It makes people dismiss them. 
and we don't want that. So we want everything to be right. So. Other question? Yes. Could you just give a um, general definition of what a cozy mystery is and how it differs from the kind of the regular standard mystery story? A cozy mystery usually has a female protagonist, an amateur, going about her ordinary life and is suddenly thrust into an investigation of a murder. It may be someone she knows, it may be a stranger, but she has to have a compelling reason to do this. She can't just be a busybody, although there are probably examples of that, but she needs to engage herself in it to solve it. It's usually set in a small, therefore enclosed community. It's not a stranger who wandered in off the street. Uh, there's very little violence. There are rarely weapons involved until you get to the police. Um, there's no sex, or if there is, it goes on behind closed doors. Um, there's no profanity. This is something your 10-year-old child can read and your 90-year-old grandmother can read. But there is an underlying sense of justice. The crime must be solved in a satisfying way because it's the right thing to do. You know, order is restored to the small universe. It's, it's the difference of tone uh, and the details that you use. Uh, a darker mystery you know, can also have an amateur at his heart. But the whole tone is is darker, and uh, there's a more somber approach, I guess, to to murder and to death. And there is more shown, more violence is shown, uh, more of the crime scene may be described in detail. Um, And the the consequences may be uh, deeper. You may have more psychological exploration of the effect of the crime on the characters. Uh, and things may not all turn out just perfectly in the end. You know, you may have some people who are damaged forever by this crime, and you make that clear at the end. Uh, so it's not all, uh, not always a happy ending. Um, but justice is usually served also. And at least in my, my books, you know, I want the bad guys to get what's coming to them. Another question? Uh, she wants to know what something about our writing process. Uh, I always tell my writing tell people my writing process is total chaos until I get to maybe the last draft, and then it's very orderly, and everything is you know I get everything just just right, just the way I want it. But when I start out, you know, my poor husband who's sitting over there suffering through this, uh, he can tell you that I'm, I'm always convinced that, that I cannot do it again. How can I possibly write another book? You know, this, a book, how can I write another book? You know, this is a long process. It, all these pages and all these words. You know, how am I going to come up with enough of a story to fill up a book? And so... I start out very tentatively, you know, and and very unsure of where I'm going. Uh, I start collecting characters, and I know where I, I know what the story is. I know what I want to say about about uh, the characters and so on. But I have to start collecting the peripheral characters. I have to start weaving in subplots. I have to. 
come up with scenes. I, and gradually, gradually, I, I build up a story. The first draft may be very short, very skimpy, and unfit for human consumption. I would not let anybody read it, not my editor, not anybody. Uh, but then after that, you know, I have a feel for the story, and I start building on that. And that, that's when I start to enjoy it. I don't enjoy the first draft. So that's my writing process, you know, and I try try to write. By the time I'm really into it, I, I try to write, you know, five times a week. And uh, if my cats will let me, I go, I go down and get started as early as I can in the morning. Uh, sometimes they don't, you know, they can be nuisances. But uh, uh, I try to write every day. And, you know, uh, having a regular schedule really does help. You know, you just pile up the words and the pages and, Gradually, you end up with a book. So. Well, I'll give you the condensed version of how I got started. I've been through five different careers now. The most recent paid place where I went to a desk and actually sat down and did something, um, I got fired ignominiously, and I said, well, gee, thanks, I'll show you, and started writing seriously. And somewhere around a million words later, I said, you'd better stop and see if you could sell any of this. Uh, So a lot of those are in a drawer. Some of them have actually seen the light of day since, and I mine them for plot points and such. But after however many books it is at this point, I've sort of figured out my own process. When I started, I was all over the place. I was writing two books plus at once and bouncing around. And It's not necessarily the best way. Now I write one book at a time, except when my editor throws edits back at me in the middle of it and I have to change gears in my head. Uh, But most often I find the current books, they're all series, they're all ongoing. They're people you get to know. I mean, they're like friends in a sense. You want them to grow over time. You can't just keep doing the same thing and saying the same thing. You you need some character development. But the plot is usually an image or an idea, something that just clicks. And then you say, well, okay, how do I do that? Like the one I'm working for... In, in the real historical society, somebody found a pit in the basement, just a hole in the floor. He said, oh, that's interesting. Nobody was able to explain it. Nobody knows why it was there. Nobody knows why it wasn't filled in. So I say, oh, that's interesting. Why? And what can I put in that pit that would give me a story? Not a body. There, no, there, I thought about that, but there's, there's no dead body in the pit. However, it does lead to a lot of other things. But it was just that one statement by a friend I was talking to, you know, oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, Sometimes it's something somebody else suggests or something you just happen to see. The next Orchard Mystery that's coming out in the fall is about essentially the Jamaican community in western Massachusetts, which has been in place for generations now, who do most of the apple picking and other crops, um, but they're always visitors. They cannot stay. They don't become part of the community. They're invisible. And that needed to change. I mean, I need to at least address these people who've been picking apples through the last six books. So, you know, something like that will will give you a setup. I, I had one about an election, and uh, that was a new character who came in. You know, they call it the high school football hero who now wants to run for Congress. And why are all these people dying around his campaign? Because <laughs> it was a election year. What do you do? <laughs> People are always asking us where we get our ideas. You know, it's just all we have to do is look around. You know, there are ideas everywhere. All you have to do is have an imagination and say, what if, you know. 
And if somebody makes us mad, you know, we can put that person in a book and kill him. And that is not only very satisfying, but we have a constant supply of victims that way, you know, because there's always somebody who's going to make you mad in your everyday life. And we just fill in the background and we've, we've got a murder so that we get our ideas from, you know, from reading, uh, reading things in the news, uh, hearing things on TV, and uh, just observing the world around us and uh, the lives of other people and, and our own lives. You know, we can pick out things from the past and twist them around a little bit and, and uh, put them in a book. So. I think we're about out of time, so uh, I want to thank Sandra and Sheila for visiting.